the role that the UN plays and the role uh, that we play as, as UNESCO is really a facilitator. We provide the spaces for these other stakeholders, especially the local organizations. I think that they should have the leading voice. They should really lead the, the efforts. They know better than anyone else what is best for their country. They understand much better than anyone else uh, which are the complexities, which are the ways to work. So the way I see myself is as merely as a facilitator. Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. Each week, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Mr. Mikel Aguirre Diaquez. Mikel is a journalist by training and worked for four years as a radio reporter for the public broadcast of the Basque Autonomous Region in Spain before initiating his journey in international development within the UN system. In 2011, Mikel joined UNESCO at the Jakarta Regional Office where he launched the first regional program on youth and civic engagement. In that program, media played a central role as a means to empowering youth and strengthening their voices. Since 2015, Mikel has been working at the UNESCO office in Myanmar, where he has been leading the organization's program on freedom of expression. He's working closely with the government and journalists to open up a space for independent media and the promotion of the right to free expression as a critical element of the democratic transition that Myanmar initiated in 2012 after decades of military rule that kept the country isolated from the rest of the world. Mikhail, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you for having me. Could you begin by telling us about what interested you in journalism in the first place and how that eventually led to a transition to, to UNESCO? Since forever, since I can remember, I always felt this uh, passion um, uh, around communication, the media. I was a very active television watcher, viewer, and I was also active reader of newspapers. And I always had this uh, interest in, in, in the very important role that I think that the media play in really breaking down complex issues and helping people understand how the world works. That's how I initiated my career in, in journalism and I started working in the public broadcaster of my 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 home, uh, the Basque Country, which is a small region in the north of Spain. And after a few years working in, in the media field directly as a reporter and newsreader, I felt I wanted to, to move a step one step forward to continue working in journalists and the media, but maybe in a different environment, uh, working in countries where journalists, uh, free reporting, that is something that we take for granted in, in developed countries, it's a still a very difficult task and journalists struggle day to day to do their job around the world. So that's how I decided to study development studies and initiate my career within UNESCO in the program of, of freedom of expression. And since I started that, uh, that journey, 
company, as uh, you said in the introduction. Now I landed in Myanmar and I'm working really closely with the government, with the journalists to, to really help opening this um, space for freedom of expression. And the more I work in this field, the more experience I gain, the more I meet journalists, government officials. I realize how important it is to really have a free media that helps the people understand how their countries, how their governments operate and also gives them a voice, an opportunity to have a say in how their country should be and how the world should work <laughs> in a broader sense. Very interesting. So your first international assignment, it was in Indonesia, correct? Yes, that's right. In those early days, you know, in your first experience working in a in another country with UNESCO, what were some of the the realities that perhaps before you you hadn't thought of or you hadn't really uh, imagined, you know, the the work would unfold in that way or the system, the way that the system works? Well, the working in development and working especially in the UN, I would say is really difficult uh, at the beginning. Even if I worked as a journalist for several years, even if I did a master's degree on development studies and, and uh, within the UN system specifically, you really don't get to grasp how it is really to work uh, in a UN organization in a developing country. So I would say that the first months and even the first years that I was working at the UNESCO office in, in Jakarta, I really struggled to really understand what was actually the role that we were playing and what what was this whole uh, development business, if, if you might call it. So it was really difficult to really to get to understand how an expert, maybe if you can say at that time that was me, how could I contribute, right, to promote freedom of expression in a, in a country like Indonesia? Also, the UN is a very complex institution. So it also took me a long time to really understand how the organization itself works and what is its role in all these development efforts, especially in countries like uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, that were the, the countries under the regional office of Jakarta, where I was working. Those are quite developed countries, uh, there is middle-income country, upper-middle-income country, with a very vibrant and solid civil society organizations, uh, very strong media institutions with press councils that already are doing excellent work in the promotion of freedom of expression and, and journalism excellence. So one of the questions that would strike me over and over again was like, how can the UN really contribute to, to strengthening these systems and, and help further in promoting freedom of expression? With time, you, you get to realize that uh, the very distinct roles that all the different actors uh, that work in development have to play, right? It's not the same role what civil society organizations play. It's not the same role uh, what journalists, press councils uh, have to play. And it's different role what the UN plays. What is really important is really to, to find what is really, where, where does your organization stand in, in all these efforts to promote freedom of expression, bring this distinctive advantage and comparative advantage to the table and all together, collaboration is one of the, the key uh, things that I, I believe. So collaboration is really the key, knowing which is the specific role that the UN plays and work together with other institutions that maybe have a more solid a grassroots grounding in the country. And all together, I always say it's like we are all rowing in the same boat in the same direction. We just need to know how do we have to row. One has to be distractions. The other one has to pull the, the row stronger or slower. But in the end, knowing how each 
piece fits in this uh, puzzle, that's the key to, to really advance in, in freedom of expression. At that time, were there any trainings offered to you or did you have any you know, specific conversations with your colleagues about how to address ethical issues in your work? Is this something that, you know, it was just assumed that you, you would individually have an opinion about it and, you know, deal with it individually? Or was there a policy or trainings or formal, you know, opportunities for you to discuss, okay, if an ethical issue comes up, how do we deal with it in terms of as a group, as an organization? Well, working in the UN, uh, obviously the, the human rights uh, declaration is uh, the basic document, is our our mother document for, for the work that we do. It is sort of assumed that everyone that decides to to embark himself, herself in, in the UN system and to work with the UN will have a shared common vision and a, a set of common values that we defend through the work that we will be doing. UNESCO itself uh, has also some very well-defined and determined guidelines as per what are the ethical issues and values that the organization defends in its work towards the partners and also internally in the organization. Also, the way the organization works at a very fast pace, uh, <laughs> we are really busy, we have a lot of work to do. I would say that maybe there was not so much uh, specific training given at the beginning, but every single year we had like a training on on work uh, ethics and also not only internally but which are the core values that we defend as an organization that we need to make ours whenever we interact with the government or other partners but as i was saying it is assumed that anyone that um, decides to join an organization like like unesco or other un agency we do have some common values we do have some common ethical standards that we aim to to bring to to our day to they work and also to to the country that we are working in in terms of defining your comparative advantage or getting to understand the role that you or your team really wanted to play could you tell us a bit about you know what the answer to that question was for you or like how do you define the role that you or your team plays? Well, in my case, I work on freedom of expression related issues, right? So freedom of expression is uh, considered mostly an area where uh, activists, NGOs, journalists work on. It's a very different area from what other UN agencies do because it's uh, straightforward defending a basic human rights. And when working with the government, there are some governments that might not be so keen to uh, improve the situation of freedom of expression in their country. But as the UN, we work for our member states and we still need to work with these governments. This is the reason why in many cases uh, the UN gets uh, heavy criticism, like why the UN doesn't do more. But I firmly believe that accompanying the government, uh, even if they have a straightforward no to freedom of expression, we still can uh, work with them to develop a better understanding of what uh, the role of media is in a democracy, the importance of freedom of expression for the development of the whole country. So these small ideas can be placed in the, the government that are like small seeds that we plant into the minds of uh, policymakers and decision makers. And with time, it really grows. And that is something that you can see. They might not open the space completely 100% uh, to freedom 
of expression in a couple of years, let's say, but it shapes the way they develop their policies. And I, I, I really believe that um, the UN has a very important role to play here that complements what CSOs and, and freedom of expression activists or human rights defenders, the work that they do, the UN complements that work by accompanying the government in understanding better why are those uh, activists or NGOs fighting for freedom of expression. So helping government and democratic institutions to understand why this is a, a claim, why this is considered a human right. Mm -hmm. As you say, it's planting the small seeds and with time they grow. So this partnership and this accompanying the government. Could you give us some examples perhaps of your own experience where through patience, through persistence, through continued advocacy, a policy or an idea that you were committed to uh, over time, uh, the government that you were working with came around and agreed to it or implemented it? Yes, well, I mean, my experience in, in Myanmar is uh, maybe the most meaningful one, right? I mean, Myanmar has been an isolated country with a military regime uh, for over four decades. They just started opening up to the world. They just started giving very small steps uh, towards uh, becoming a democracy. Uh, so here we are working very closely and working very closely with the Ministry of Information. In the first years of the, um, of the transition, there were many very bold and brave steps given by the government with new legislation uh, put in place to, to promote freedom of expression. Censorship was abolished after 40 years, but then it got to a point of uh, stagnation. The government was not maybe daring to give new steps, or maybe they thought that um, their work was was already done, that Myanmar was already a place where freedom of expression can be guaranteed, which actually is not. We are still very far from having a fully free media in the country. So the way we are working now with the government and also with the parliament and even with the judiciary is to help them understand better why it's important to have freedom of expression, why we haven't done enough work yet. Why people have the right to know what is going on. And although new legislation hasn't been passed in the last three years, the government has initiated a series of initiatives to continue raising awareness among the people, among the institutions, why media is important and why transparency, the flow of information is important. So, so through these efforts, together with the government, we have started to have very honest discussions with uh, the Supreme Court. We We've been having discussions with the military, which still holds um, a lot of power in the country. 25% uh, of the seats in the parliament are still in the hands of the military, and four ministries, as per the constitution, remain still in the hands of the military. So, of course, working with them to help them understand why freedom of expression is a basic human right and why it needs to be guaranteed. So then they started to have a better understanding. I mean, and of course, we cannot change a country that that has been isolated and with a very tight military regime for 40 years. We cannot change this overnight. But we are seeing a small reactions or responses already to, to these claims to expand the, the space for freedom of expression. The military has started now to have press conferences every month where they share uh, the work that they are doing, when they share uh, updates on the, the ongoing conflict 
there are over 16 guerrillas and armed groups fighting right now in Myanmar against the, the central military body. And until now, there was almost no information coming uh, from these areas. And the military is now having these press conferences and updating the public and the journalists on what is happening because they are realizing that they need to share this information, that this is an information that uh, needs to be known by Myanmar citizens so that they, they can make up an opinion. So it's a very long process, mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes the international pressure can be too much, especially in a country like Myanmar. There has been a lot of international pressure to, to have the country overturned overnight. They wanted suddenly, uh, we wanted a democracy basically overnight, but this is a very long process. And in a country, as I was saying, like Myanmar, with 40 years of a history of military regime, we really need to start from the very beginning. And not only explaining uh, policymakers and decisions makers, what is uh, freedom of expression, why it is important, we also need to explain better to the public what are the human rights. It seems something silly, but a lot of Myanmar people, they are not aware that just for being born, just for existing, they are entitled to a series of rights. No one has ever talked to them and told them that they have rights just for being alive, for existing. So all this process of educating uh, Myanmar people in their own rights and that they have have as well the right to claim them is also part of the work that we are doing. So it's a very complex country, very complex situation, not only working with institutions for them to, to comply with international standards and with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, but this we are putting lots of efforts as well in working with the people so that they understand the rights that they are entitled to and that they have as well the right to fight for it and, and to claim them, to demand these rights are fulfilled by their, by their country. Mm -hmm. Right, so human rights-based approach. Myanmar is such a unique and complex country, as you mentioned, but it's very uh, interesting to hear that in, in your experience, there have been a series of positive changes, even though, of course, uh, establishing a democracy takes a long time. When you think of, you know, the concept of representation and uh, the way that not only perhaps Myanmar is portrayed by international media, but the way that perhaps the information information that people in Myanmar have access to about the world outside of their country. When you just think about representation and the importance of the ethical issues that are related to being honest, being truthful, protecting people's identity, perhaps in reports and stories, all these issues that come up. What are some of your thoughts or your experiences, you know, in terms of reporting or reports that you've contributed to or you've worked on? As a journalist uh, myself, very often we are not really aware of the great power that we have in our hands, the great power that the media has in, as you were saying, representation. Especially since the, the crisis in the north of Rakhine happened in the summer of 2017, in August 2017, the media, especially international media, has given a very concrete uh, idea or representation of what Myanmar is, of what uh, this crisis that, I mean, for, for those who, who might not be so familiar with the situation in Myanmar, uh, this crisis in the north of Rakhine State uh, led to, to a massive refugee crisis of Rohingya ethnic citizens fleeing to, to the neighboring country of Bangladesh. There are some reports by the fact-finding mission of uh, OHCHR, uh, commissioned by OHCHR, that see traces of genocide 
in 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 this issue uh, in the hands of the Myanmar military. No one has been able to to reach the areas where uh, this uh, alleged genocide uh, happened. Uh, and since that issue happened, the media has really given a very specific image picture of Myanmar. Of course. Something really terrible happened there, but that doesn't reflect what is going on in the whole country. Of course, the people that are responsible for this uh, genocide, if uh, finally it's confirmed that there was one, uh, needs to to be um, needs to be held accountable. But it is true that every single media reporting about the issue in Myanmar doesn't go deeper into the root causes of this, into the complexities of this country, into what the people in this country went through for the last 40 years. Myanmar is an incredible diverse country. It has the size of uh, Germany, let's say, it's 50 million people, and over 135 different ethnic groups live together in this country. And the issue of Rakhine is one more issue among all the challenges that this country is facing. The economy is completely tarnished. The education system is absolutely outdated. It didn't change in the last 50 years at all. There are so many complexities within this country. But of course, in a news report, you cannot capture all of that. Uh, so outside of the country, there was like one very specific picture that was um, uh, drawn from what Myanmar is and how the government is acting. And within the country, of course, it was completely different <laughs> from within the country also, because all those media reportings, they really feel that uh, the world is against Myanmar. And this has been really counterproductive because what the country is now moving towards to is more isolation. Once they started opening up, they just feel that the international community is being unfair with them and they are going more into this uh, situation of isolation. But but that's how, that's the nature of the media, that's the nature of the news media. It's really difficult to get to capture all the complexities and all the challenges that the country is facing in just, let's say, two-minute video report or in a one-page feature. Uh, so, I mean, the, the, the call is more on the media consumers not to go a bit beyond just two, three news reports and really try to read more about an issue and trying to understand more an issue. I mean, things are not white or black. There is a lot of gray area. Absolutely. When you work with NGOs or local activists, in that relationship, there needs to be a certain level of trust for cooperation to happen. Could you perhaps tell us about, you know, how you've experienced uh, the best ways or some tools to build that trust, to create an environment where each different stakeholder or actor can really trust one another? Sometimes, you know, even amongst agencies, there can be rivalries, all sorts of of different incidents or causes where trust is undermined or equal cooperation doesn't exist. So in your experience, what are some ways or what are some tools or approaches that you've used or that have helped you in the process of, you know, building trust with your fellow uh, stakeholders? In my opinion, the role that the UN plays and the role uh, that we play as, as UNESCO is really a facilitator. We provide the spaces uh, for these other stakeholders, especially the local organizations. I think that they should have 
the leading boys. They should really lead the, the efforts. They know better than anyone else what is best for their country. They understand much better than anyone else uh, which are the complexities, which are the ways to work. Uh, so the way I see myself is as merely as a facilitator. I enable them to talk to the institutions that for them it might not be so easy, let's say, to meet with the Minister of Information. But for me, as a, a UN, I have that door uh, open most of the time. I can easily access um, the highest level officials within the government thanks to my UN uh, umbrella. So the way I see myself is really facilitating, enabling uh, these local organizations that really know and understand their country to access these positions uh, in power. Also in Myanmar, is we are starting basically from zero. Civil society organizations existed before the opening of the country, but they were very small and they had very little exposure. They had very little experience working with international development partners. So a very important role that, uh, that I've been playing is really to strengthen their capacities. How can they better communicate their ideas? How can they better develop their own programs? Even the organizational structure of the local organizations uh, uh, were very informal ad hoc, but not really well-structured institution that can grow stronger, that can really position themselves as a leading actor in whichever field they are working on. So I really see that a key key uh, area to, to build this trust is take a back seat and let the local organizations, because they always know better, uh, to lead the processes and as the UN or as an international organization, just uh, provide them the space, the tools, the capacities to do that. And on the other hand, to continue strengthening them, supporting them to become stronger. Because at one point, development at the end of the day, we are a temporary assistant. At one point, we will need to leave uh, Myanmar, the country, and let the people living in this country to lead their processes and, and, and really take the decisions about uh, how they want their country to be. So we have to keep that in mind, that we are a temporary assistance and will need to leave at one point. So what is really important is to, to strengthen these, these local institutions, these local mechanisms, organizations, for them to really be able to realize this vision that they have for their country. Absolutely. As you say, organizations, international organizations, in theory, are there on a temporary basis. And that, that idea that international organizations can eventually leave, that always has to be kept in the minds of people working in this industry. UNESCO was in the news when uh, the U.S. decided to, to withdraw its funding from the organization. Of course, there are other funding member states, but the U.S. withdrew and that was a significant amount of money that was leaving and it, it caused quite a stir. Uh, I'm wondering if you could speak to us a bit about perhaps what you think about donors and the politicization of funding and maybe how you think the organization has restructured itself since that happened? Well, actually, the U.S. already stopped their funding in 2011, which is when UNESCO accepted Palestine as a member state to the organization. Uh, so the U.S. stopped the funding in 2011 when that happened. And in 2017, they decided to pull out completely from the organization. So they stopped the funding first, but they continued to have a seat in the general uh, 
conference where are where the decisions of the organization uh, are made but then to 2017 they decided to completely pull out so the biggest challenge was in 2011 right after the u.s decided to pull out their funding there was a whole restructuring of the organization and since then we are relying more and more on bilateral donors that provide their funding directly to field offices to fund specific programs let's say that we have two pools of funding one that is given by the regular contributions that every member state gives on a biannual basis to the organization. And then there are these other contributions that different uh, countries give to a specific programs and a specific activities in field offices or also in our headquarters for global activities for a given framework. Uh, this, as you said, might raise questions about how much power has this, um, have these bilateral donors to influence, let's say, the political agenda. I wouldn't say there is a political agenda, but uh, the development agenda of UNESCO. But the truth is that UNESCO has a mother program with four very well-structured lines or areas of action where we have already our expected results. And whenever we reach out to new bilateral donors that will fund specific activities, all of those activities need to fit within this mother framework that is decided with the consensus of all the member states. So there is I think that it's, the organization is structured in a way that even if we get additional funding for specific activities, it always falls under the main lines of action that are uh, predetermined by the general conference that includes all the, all the member states. When you think about the international development industry generally, what do you think are some of the challenges or how, what are some of the issues you think should be addressed or how the work should be done in a different way just generally in the entire industry? Well, UNESCO, and as well as the whole UN, is an organization that uh, is uh, massive, we can say, has present all around the world. We are uh, dozens of different organizations under one same umbrella. So this has created the very complex organizational structure and very complex bureaucracy. From here is where it comes um, all the criticism that sometimes the UN gets for being quote-unquote inefficient because we have to really deal with a very complex bureaucratic system and organizational structure. But this is also a reflection of the very complex issues and complexities that we have to, to address and deal with every day. Development and the promotion of human rights is a very complex and complicated area of work and issue. This is not like a laboratory. This is not where we can come with a recipe and we apply this and then the results come. So there are so many complexities in every different country, in every situation. The world is constantly changing. So, of course, the, the complex organizational structure and, and bureaucracy of the UN is just a reflection of the complexities of the world and environment where we have to, to work. And it's the response to those, those complexities. The world is constantly changing and the UN has to constantly change, create new strategies, create new approaches, create new systems to address the, the, the complex worlds that we, we live at. 
The unis right now as well in a very profound transformation process. We are uh, reflecting in the way that we have been working in the past years and we are creating new systems to become more efficient when responding to crises, uh, to be more efficient and effective when we have to, to address uh, issues of conflict, uh, climate change, uh, hate speech, which are some of the new key areas that are arising, the, the refugee crisis in, in, in Europe, for example. All these new challenges uh, need new responses, and the UN is trying to restructure itself to address this. Also, I think that we are moving globally towards a, a situation where the UN might take a more not secondary position, but it will act more as a provider of ideas, approaches, and tools that the countries will be able to apply by themselves without the direct assistance that uh, until now uh, international organizations, and here I'm not referring only to the UN, but also other international bodies, uh, were given before. So we lacked more as a laboratory of ideas, of solutions that are proposed for the countries, um, for the different national institutions, organizations to address themselves. So I think that that shift in, in development is, is happening and, and I think that that's the direction that development work and the UN will be taking in, in, in coming years. I see. Very interesting. So this restructuring process, this shift, of course, sometimes these processes require, you know, very good leadership and leadership skills. Leaders in different positions of power can really be a great catalyst in, in creating or leading social change, in creating teams or work environments where, you know, social impact is achieved. Uh, what would you say are some of the um, qualities that you think is needed to be a good leader in this industry, to, to be effective and to, you know, face the challenges that exist? I, I think that the, the first thing would be to really be passionate about this work and be ready to face a lot of frustration. Frustration in the ground when dealing with uh, different partners, frustration that can come from the relationship uh, with the, the government and the national institutions. There is a lot of frustration because because of the first quality that I was saying, no? uh, the passion. You are very passionate, you want to see change, but then the change doesn't happen as fast as one expects or in the way that one expects. So then is when the frustration comes. But passion is really important and to be able to inspire colleagues, to be able to inspire the rest of the team, that the work that we do is worth it, that uh, despite all the shortcomings and all the challenges, it is worth to fight and work uh, for a more just, fair, equal world where human rights are respected. Maybe this sounds uh, a bit too much like a, a sports event speech, but uh, <laughs> this is really the reality. It's a world where, where passion for these uh, values and strong belief that human rights are really what should lay at the core of any governance system or any state and government, that is really the, the, the core value uh, that we all should have and that the leader needs to have and being able to inspire colleagues and being able to inspire the team and build trust, build trust among all the different partners and stakeholders that work together in, in this. And these stakeholders are basically everyone is the institutions, parliament, the government, the judiciary system, the security forces, 
is stakeholders are as well uh, local organizations the ones who work directly with the communities in the ground the organizations that work in the defense of uh, human rights uh, as well as the international donors bringing uh, the vision that they see for their country in line with, with, with the policies and, and, and the strategies of uh, foreign governments. So uh, I, I'm a great defender of multilateralism, and I think that uh, leaders need to, to really understand that collaboration, always collaboration, is really, the, in my opinion, the key to success. As you were asking me in one of the previous questions, no, very often there is a lot of rivalry uh, within different organizations that work in the same field in, in a given topic, in a given country. And that rivalry, I really think, is, is the last thing that we need. Now, we have to think of each other as really as uh, complementary each other's work and each other's efforts. Only that way we can really achieve our goals because in the end we want all of us, we want the same thing. Absolutely, yes. I, all the qualities you mentioned, they're, they're so important and you, you express them so passionately. When you think about your own career and perhaps the people who have inspired you or have really influenced you, whether you know it could have been a supervisor or perhaps it was a, a government partner or any other person, is there a person or perhaps more than one person that comes to mind? And uh, what did that person teach you or what behavior did they model? that really influenced you? Yes, I, I would mention two people come to my mind uh, straight away. Uh, one is the the very first supervisor I, I had when working with UNESCO when I was in, in Jakarta. He, his name is uh, Sharaf Ahmed and, and he really accompanied me in these first steps in the development world. He really uh, helped me to understand what was the, the nature of the work that we were doing, why it was worth it. And he really taught me this in this quality that I was mentioning over and over again before this uh, cooperation that really like uh, we should think how can we complement each other and try to work with different partners as much as we can forget about these uh, rivalries or this jealousy between agencies organizations and really uh, work together and always uh, approach uh, every new challenge with with an open mind and open arms because in the end it really pays off it it really pays off. The, the, the result is always much better than if one endeavor is, is addressed unilaterally by, by one single actor. Collaboration always is a plus. It, it's always a win-win situation, I would say. And here in Myanmar, I have met so many uh, inspiring journalists. There is one, especially, he's the chief editor of a news media house here in Myanmar. He's a great human rights defender. Uh, he spent 10 years in prison for a demonstration that he did once uh, to in defense of uh, Aung San Suu Kyi when she was still in home arrest. He spent 10 years in prison. He just came out uh, when the opening of the country started in 2012. He started his own media house and despite all the challenges in the country, uh, the harassment that many journalists still face in, in Myanmar, he really speaks out uh, for human rights. When He told me once, when I see an injustice, when I see a human rights abuse situation, I can just not stop myself. I need to tell this story. I need to investigate. I need to tell the world this. And I know that 
for what I say. Um, they might want to put me back in prison, but I'm not afraid of that because I really believe on what I'm doing. So those words uh, of this Myanmar journalist really inspire me and is it really motivates me to continue doing the work that I'm doing here in, in Myanmar. Because yes, I was saying for me, there might be a lot of frustration, but for him... The, the result of doing the work that he does might be going back to, to prison. So at the end of the day, uh, these kind of people really, there is so much at stake for them. So even all the work that we can do is not even enough <laughs> to, to really fulfill the, you see the value of the work that you are doing and you see why it's worth to work so much. Uh, and, and so effortlessly <laughs> on, on the area that we work and on development. Oh, wow. As you say, there's so much at stake and there's really uh, such a great need to keep going, <laughs> just continue. But when you think about, you know, approaches or communication tools or, you know, you work a lot on freedom of expression and you, you work in terms of advocacy with government and using a human rights based approach. But besides that, are there any, you know, communications tools or new approaches or activities that you have come across that you think are really interesting, that should be shared more, that uh, should be implemented more? Are there, you know, any new things that come to mind when you think about ways of approaching communication or media or access to information or any of these issues? Well, I think that we should start uh, by really educating people. I think that uh, we've been putting a lot of effort in working with the journalists to strengthen their capacities, in working with press councils and, and media self-regulatory bodies in, in developing code of conduct uh, to get the, the highest standards, ethical standards uh, in journalists, in working with the government and policymakers to have the proper legislation in place. But especially in the current world where we live in, there has to be much more effort put in place to really educate media consumers and people in general in what is the role of the media, how do we approach media, how do we access information, how do we digest all the media and information that we get every day through our cell phones. We are seeing uh, in so many cases, in so many countries, uh, the really terrible effects of disinformation, uh, of hate speech, of the fake news. I don't like to use that word because if it's fake, it's not news, but uh, of this fake news as most of the people call them disinformation in general and really the focus should be put in the users, in people that consume this media every day. We should develop more this critical thinking, the way we access information, the way we read every day what is in the screens of our smartphones, the, the way that we interpret every video, every audio that we receive every day in our instant messaging apps, in our social media. More focus needs to be put in uh, people, in the media consumers, because at the end of the day, it's also in their hands to demand the accountability from the media. So that, that is, I think, uh, the main shift that we really have to, to, to put more focus on and what is really needed in this more connected uh, world. And another uh, thing not only applied to communication, freedom of expression and the media, but also applied to 
development in general, I think that all of us development workers need to put much more efforts in learning more about the context that we are working in. We are so busy writing our reports. We are so busy developing new projects, uh, interacting and talking with our partners uh, that it seems that we don't have time to read more about the country that we are living in. I think that uh, development workers, we really need to be a bit more uh, anthropologists. We really need to understand much better which are the values of the country, which is its history, uh, which are its complexities, uh, which is their vision of the world, of the work that we do. So I think that much more effort needs to be put by all development uh, actors, everyone working in development, really, from from the people that work in finance, administration, (laughs) communication, for people working in the programs. We need to understand much better the country that we live in. We need to read much more about its history. We need to read much more about its people to understand the way they they behave, their attitudes, their values. So I think this is a critical area that very often is really overlooked. Really understanding the local context and history and culture can be so important. But have you experienced, you know, cases of where where the consequence of not knowing or not learning or not reading have been... I mean, what have been the consequences in your experience? Well, I, I cannot think right now of a specific examples that I might have faced. But what I can really say is that I've been living now in the Southeast Asia for almost nine years. And I've been living in Myanmar for almost five years now. And every single day, I continue learning and understanding things much more and much better than when I arrived for the first time five years ago. And I see that many things that I did um, when I arrived right now, I will do them in a completely different way. I'm not saying that before those things were, I didn't do them well, but now I understand how those things can be done in a much better way, in a much more conflict-sensitive way, in a much more appropriate and effective way for what this country really needs. So the complexities of a country, even if we say, yes, it's a very complex country, I've been reading uh, journals, magazines about it for a long time before coming here, but there is always so much more uh, than what we see in the first, in the first place. Mm-hmm. That's so interesting. Very important point that you brought up. Absolutely. But in terms of, you know, your 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 focus has so far been on South Asia and some people in the international development sector, they really have a regional focus. What do you think are the um, of the benefits of having a career where you're mostly in one region of the world as opposed to one where you you move more frequently well, I think that this is directly linked to, to what I was explaining before. I mean, now I think I have a quite good understanding of, of the, of course, different countries are completely different contexts. But it is true that in the Southeast Asia, there are like some common values, a common behaviors, common attitudes that, that you can find across the different countries. And for me, where I see this benefit mostly is in the relationships with people. Because, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm coming from a very far place from 
from where I am right now, right? I'm from, from Spain and it's a very different context from, from the context here. The relationships, the way you you address, deal with different partners, with government officials is completely different. And now, after living this long in, in, in Southeast Asia, I feel very confident when I talk with partners, when, when I discuss ideas with partners, with government officials, because I feel I understand them better. I know how how to to kind of guide the discussions, how to understand the way they share their ideas better. Uh, I remember at the very beginning when I moved to, to, to Jakarta, to Indonesia, very often after having a meeting with the government officials or, or even with a local organization, at the end of the meeting, I never really knew uh, for sure if the meeting went well or, or if it went wrong. Even if you understand the words, even if you understand <laughs> what is happening in the meeting, but you don't really see you don't really read this this second layer between lines that was really difficult at that time now i feel very confident you have such passion for your work and you've had such interesting observations that is, there's a lot to learn from so thank you so much for everything that you shared with us today no, thank you, Safa, for for your call, and I'm I'm happy because I I really love the work that uh, I do. I really believe in in the in development work and also in the role that the that the UN plays. Uh, so I'm always happy to to share so that uh, it's also better understood the the work that we do every day and really the complexity of this career and 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 this kind of work and the complexities also that we are dealing in in this world that we live. In. So I'm, I'm, I'm really happy to share this. Thank you so much. Yes, absolutely. I think that everything you mentioned really sheds a lot of light on perhaps if some listeners who don't work in this industry and are just curious about it, there's so much they can learn by hearing from your the points you made. And uh, as you say, it's very complex, but the value of people like you who are so committed and so passionate and really strongly believe in the work, it's infectious. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to our listeners to keep up with our weekly podcast you can subscribe on itunes spotify and google podcast platforms where you can also rate and review our episodes and share it with friends you can also follow us on instagram where our handle is at rethinking development if you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask any future guests please feel free to email them to us at rethinking development podcast at gmail.com I look forward to continuing this conversation with you all. Until then, take care.